So that's what we're going to do. Why don't you turn with me to, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. And I hope you wore your shouting clothes, as Brother Hagen would say. This is going to be fun for me, and I think fun for you. Hebrews, uh, chapter 8. And the book of Hebrews, uh, I've heard it said, uh, based upon studies, that the book of Hebrews is the least read epistle in all the New Testament. And I, I told my dad the other day, because I've been meditating a lot in the book of Hebrews, that I could just pack up my bags and move to the book of Hebrews and just live there for a few years. It is just absolutely phenomenal. And the book of Hebrews is, is the author of Hebrews is making a bold, clear, concise, uncompromising uh, uh, line in the sand between Old Covenant and New Covenant, okay? Now, like Hebrews, you're in chapter 8, but like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the author starts out and he says this. He says, God, who at different times and in various ways spoke unto us by the prophets... But in these last days, He's spoken unto us by His Son, who is the exact, uh, the King James says express, the exact precise image of the Father. So he's saying in this new covenant, uh, Jesus is the image of God. So we cannot uh, properly discern the nature and character and person of God unless we do it by looking at Jesus. Does that make sense? Jesus said that in John 14. He, he told, I think, Philip. He said, he, Philip said, if you show us the Father, then we'll really believe. And he said, have I been with you this long? You still don't get it? He said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. All right? So we judge God's character largely through the person of Jesus. Now, when we say that, you have to qualify that a little bit because what did Paul say? Paul said in the book of Galatians chapter 1, he said, the revelation of the gospel of grace, I did not receive it from man, neither was I taught it by man, but I received it directly from God himself. All right? So th that, in, in other words, you, you could say it this way, Paul's epistles is Jesus talking to us through Paul. Does that make sense? So, so he's drawing a line in the sand here. Now, Hebrews, we'll look at some of these maybe in the coming weeks. Chapter 1, he compares Jesus to the angels, and he proves that Jesus is greater than the angels. Then you get into like chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, and he compares Jesus to Joshua. Then he compares him to Moses. Then in chapter 5 and 6, and then really in chapter 7, uh, he compares Jesus as a high priest in comparison to the, the Levitical priests. Does that make sense? It's just going through the whole book and all the objections that they would have. Like, what do you, you know, yeah, we got Jesus, but we still need Moses. Yeah, we got Jesus, but we still need Joshua. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? He's making a distinction, and he's saying, Jesus, uh, chapter 12, he sums it up and says this, look unto Jesus, he's the author and finisher of our faith. Because he goes through chapter 11, and he gives us the hall of faith. And he says, you know, Abraham believed God, and this happened. Moses believed God, and this happened. Noah, Jacob, David, Samson, Gideon. It goes through all these people, Sarah, just tons of them. And then he goes through that whole chapter, and he, and he tells us, yes, they did things through faith that, was, that were very um, admirable. He says in chapter 12, but 
That's not our example. We look to Jesus. He's the only way to properly establish our faith. Does that make sense? Okay, so now, Hebrews chapter 8, he, he really uh, gives a very clear distinction between the Old and the New Covenant. Now, we're going to share some things. I'm going to share some things today that will be review for some of us. Some of it will be. And then some of it, this may be the first time you've ever heard some of this stuff, and it may flip your wig. But sometimes our wig needs flipped. Can you say, uh-huh? Jesus said, you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. All right? So we, we need, uh, how do I say that? If we need better results, we need more truth. That's one way to say it. Does that make sense? So, okay. You ever see that movie? It's, it's not a good movie, really. It's called Idiocracy. You may ever see that? It's Owen Wilson's brother, Luke Wilson. And, and the world is, like, dumb. The whole world, I, don't, I can't remember what I had, but the whole world was dumb. The president of the United States, he was like a wrestler, uh, and, and he was just, he was just a, a thug, just a gangster. He was just, you know what I mean? And it, it's just a really wild movie. And this one guy got chirogenically frozen or something. I don't know what happened to him. That wasn't exact. Something happened to him. And he wakes up, and he's the only guy with, like, you know, a normal IQ. And so they're... Uh, America doesn't have any crops because they're trying to use some sports drink like Gatorade. They're so dumb, they don't realize, you know, it's, it's a goofy movie. And they don't know you use water. You know what I'm saying? So they use water, and they get crops. And they think this guy's a genius because of it. And in other, in other words, that's a, a goofy illustration just to, just to point out, if we want better results... Let's quit pouring Gatorade on the crops. Let's use water. You know what I'm saying? So it, it's, and Paul talked in Ephesians about the washing of the water of the word. All right? Now, let me, I'll tell you what, stay in Hebrews, but I'm going to read a verse to you here. I guess you can turn there if you want. You can hold your spot. 2 Timothy chapter 2, just quickly in passing here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. I'm in the King James right now. Listen to this verse. Paul says, study very familiar verse, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman, again, that's 2 Timothy 2, 15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed. Now, the last part he says, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, think about that. Paul is instructing people there is a division, and we need to learn how to rightly divide, all right? So, let me say this. I think that one of the biggest uh, reasons for theological confusion is the inability to properly divide the Old and the New Covenant. Fair enough? That sounds really simple, but it's really profound. Uh, again, I, I don't know why I keep quoting him, but Andrew Womack said that most people think the only difference between the Old and New Testament is a blank page in their Bible between Malachi and Matthew. You know what I mean? And so we don't properly understand some of the, the legalities, if you will. Um, and so we just kind of mesh it all together. Now, Jesus made a clear distinction between the Old and New Covenant. I share this example all the time, but it bears repeating. Luke, I think, chapter 7. Here comes Jesus, and he's going through a town, and he's got James and John with him. And it says that they did not receive Jesus because they could tell he was going past them onto another town. So they committed the worst sin of all, rejecting Jesus, all right? Now, uh, James and John said, Lord, 
Do you want us to call fire down to consume them? All right? They had Old Testament Scripture to do that. Are you hearing me? They had biblical precedents to call down the judgment of God on people. But Jesus said, you, he rebuked them. He said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. And then basically paraphrasing, he said, the Son of Man didn't come to, to destroy lives. I came to give life. Are you out there? All right? So there is a clear distinction. They're not the same thing. We don't just mesh them together. There is a difference between the old and the new covenant. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 8 here. And... Uh, we're going to start in verse 6, Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Now he says this, he says, But now hath he, talking about Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator, now look at this, of a better covenant which is established upon better promises. Now I'm calling this better covenant, better blood. So one of the reasons in the new covenant we have a better covenant is because we have better blood, all right? And, and we're going to look at that and expound upon that. Now, that sounds so simple. You think, well, duh, of course the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of bulls and goats and pigeons and turtle doves and all the stuff they use for sacrifices. But, you know, I, I think we've really hardly scratched the surface in the body of Christ on the value of the blood of Jesus. You know what I mean? Paul tells the, or Paul, Peter tells uh, in his first epistle, chapter 1, he says, you have not been redeemed with corruptible things, and then he says, like the vain traditions of your fathers. Now, who was Peter an apostle to? Jewish people. So Peter tells in his first epistle that the Jewish law were vain, corruptible traditions. They were good at the time, but they're not good anymore. They're vain. They're futile. They're, you know what I'm saying? They're, there's, there's no profit to them. And he even calls them corruptible because they fade away. The, the, the priesthood... Hebrews talks about this. The priesthood of Jesus is, and this is how the King James says it, is after an endless life. Now, an Old Testament priest would serve his time, and he would die. And then there'd be a new high priest. Jesus, this is so cool, Jesus, it says, he offered his sacrifice for sins after an endless life. So, think about this born-again person. You are forgiven... For as long as Jesus is alive. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay? We're forgiven as long as he is alive. Now, let's read here in Hebrews chapter 8. And some of these verses are familiar, but I think we've seldom experienced the impact of these. Okay? Now, a better covenant established on better promises. Now, well, let's, let's, uh, let me say this. The better promises... Is our, the, the better promises are not things like healing and prosperity. Old Testament saints had healing and prosperity provided for them. You understand that? Okay? Think about um, Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to make your name great, and you'll have a whole bunch of kids, and you'll be the father of a nation. You know, you know the promise there in Genesis 12. Okay? Now, like in the book of Exodus, the, the children of Israel are operating under that blessing of Abraham. The, Israel, the Hebrew people were established through Abraham. God came in and made a covenant with him. Now, think about like the, uh, the children of Israel in the book of Exodus, whenever God set them free from Pharaoh and their slavery in Egypt. When they left there, they were rich. They were, uh, and, and you got to read Exodus and Numbers and get the whole picture, you know, just a little brief synopsis here. Uh, there's one point in their walk where, like, Moses, he was an old man, old man over, 100, over 100 years old, and it says none of his natural forces were abated. In other words, he was 120 years old or whatever, but his eyesight was still good like a young man. And it said he still had strength like a young man. So there's, there's someone under the old covenant operating in divine health. Then look at David. God made him wealthy. Abraham, God made him financially wealthy. David, financially wealthy. Uh, the, the nation of Israel as a whole, when they walked in the covenant the best they knew how to, they had divine protection against the enemies of Israel. The, the, they had provision. They had healing. They had uh, so many blessings that we have. But what they did not have, now think about this, and we're going to read this here. This sounds simple, but it's really not. The whole book of Hebrews was written to make this point. What they did not have was the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Now, there's a mindset in the church that thinks that the forgiveness of sins is an ABC. You learn that the first day you get saved. We need to move on to mature stuff, this kind of thing, like it's a baby doctrine. And yet, I think very few of us understand the first thing about the forgiveness of sins. And I'm, I'm dead serious with that. All right? I walked in ignorance of it as a believer for, uh, well, I was raised in church and then I got saved at 19, but from my whole life, I never had a clear, concise understanding of what it really means to be forgiven in the new covenant because there's a vast difference between Old Testament forgiveness and New Testament forgiveness. And let me say this, I'm not a critical person. I can listen to almost any preacher and Get blessed by something. I don't look for stuff to... I'm not a fault finder. I'm not a doctor and nitpicker. I, you know what? I'm not that way. I don't get offended when people say something different from me from the pulpit. But let me say this. A clear understanding of the forgiveness of sins is something worth fighting for. Because it's not a maybe, yeah, sort of, Jordan, that's kind of true, but we got to take some... No, we're, and we're going to look at what I mean by some of this in detail. It is worth fighting. It's not maybe, it's not, yeah, sort of. It, there is a line in the sand. Like Moses under the Old Testament, he had some people rise up against him. And uh, we have sayings today like this, you know, like, uh, I can't, like, you know, we're on our, we'll stay on our side of the street, you stay on yours, or, you know, if, you know, little kids will still, they'll draw a line in the sand and say, if you're on my team, get over here, and if you're over there, on Billy's team, get over there. But in the book of Exodus, some people were opposing Moses, and he actually drew a line in the sand and said, if you think I'm hearing from God, get over here. And they came over there, and I think the rest of them got killed. You know what I mean? I think God told Moses to kill them all. And uh, so, <laughs> but we're drawing, you know, a, a spiritual line in the sand today. Now, let's look here. Verse, verse 6 again says, better covenant, better promises. All right? Verse 7. For if the, look at, I mean, this is remarkable. If the first covenant had been faultless, 
then there would have been no place sought for a second covenant. So he says the first covenant had fault. Okay? Verse 8. For finding fault with them, God said, Behold, the days will come, says the Lord. Now check this out. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9. Check this out. Not according to the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not. Now see, verse 7 says God found fault with the old covenant. The fault of the old covenant was verse 9. They couldn't continue in it. That's the fault of the covenant. All right? Now, chapter 6 of Hebrews tells us this. God made a covenant with God. Well, why would God make a covenant with God? Because when God made a covenant with man, man couldn't keep his end of the deal. And God is so set on blessing humanity that if he has to, he'll find somebody perfect who will never break their end of the agreement just so he can bless man. And that's what he did. God, the Father, made a covenant with God the Son. Now, that's part of the reason why Jesus had to become a human. Because in order for God to make a covenant with man, he needed a man. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) That's real simple, right? So Jesus became a man and said, okay, I'll hold up my end of the agreement. And as a man, you can bless everybody who's in me. Now, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says this, says that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. What was the curse of the law? The curse of the law was the inability to keep the law. If I can keep the law, then God has legal grounds to bless me. The problem with that is verse 9 in this same chapter. We, couldn't, we can't continue in it perfectly. So God has grounds, because I can't hold up my end of the agreement, God has grounds to not bless me. But God is so adamant to bless me, He decided to become a man and keep it perfectly. And as long as I'm in Him, kind of like Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. You guys, we're not going to labor in that today. But David had made a covenant with Jonathan. He says he loved him like he was his own family. And he found out that there was a descendant of Jonathan. And Mephibosheth, when he was born, a woman dropped him on his head, and he was, he was, I don't think it says exactly what happened, but I think if I remember right, he couldn't walk, right? His legs were messed up somehow. He couldn't walk, I think. And so here's this guy, he's crippled, and the Jews taught if you're sick, you're that way because you got sin and God cursed you. So somebody comes and says, you're a descendant of Jonathan? Yes, King David wants to see you. Now, you know he's freaking out if the king calls you in, right? So he goes to the king, and then from that day forward, he has a seat, at the king's table. Why? Because of his lineage. He was of the seed of someone that David, the king, was in covenant with. So Mephibosheth wasn't Jonathan, but he was his seed. We're not Jesus, but we're in Jesus. We're his seed. So God blesses you and I just like he blesses Jesus. Woo! That's really good. Okay? So that's Hebrews 6, and that's why God made a covenant with God. So he could treat me like I'm, you understand, like I'm a family member in God's own family. That is remarkable. So now, let's keep reading here. I know, I know this involves thinking, 
But that's good for us, <laughs> okay? Let's, you, have, you, you have to with this kind of stuff. You won't meet one in 50,000 Christians who really believes that they are forgiven and stand upright before God all the time. It's a, such a rarity, all right? Now, look at verse, uh, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make, I love this, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Check this out. I will put my law into their mind. See, God's doing this. What was the problem with the Old Testament? I couldn't continue in it. I couldn't keep it perfectly. So God says, that's okay. I'll put it in you. So God does this. I will put my law into their mind and write them in their heart. And I will be to them a God. And they will be to me a people. Verse 11, he says, And they will not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least to the greatest. Hallelujah. Now, verse 12, he tells us how and why this new covenant works this way. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Verse 13 in that, he says, a new covenant, he makes the first one old. In the New Living Translation, it says, basically, it uses the word uh, obsolete. He's made the first covenant obsolete. It's a non-effective, it's a non-issue, it's dead, it's gone. There's no combination of the old and new. In that, he says, a new covenant, he made the first one old. Now that, now that the old covenant, decays and, and grows old and is ready to vanish and disappear altogether. So think about this. Now, verse 11, he says this. He said, everyone in the new covenant will know me from the least to the greatest. So all of us, no one has uh, more favor with God than another person. Not even Jesus. Jesus, because we're in him, and as he is, so am I in this world. Not even Jesus has more favor with God than, than I, a born-again person, has. You understand what I mean? Why? Because I'm in him. His righteousness is my righteousness. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, his, some of his last words to his disciples. He says stuff like, uh, Father, as you have loved me, you love them the same way. And then he said, now think about this. Jesus said, I give my glory unto them. What is his glory? That's his standing as the Son of God. So Jesus has given us that same standing, all right? Now, turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. I think it's really interesting that he says there, he says, um, all will know me from the least to the greatest, and every man won't have to teach his neighbor like they did under the law. He said, but uh, all will know me. And then he says, for I will be merciful. Now, I think it's really interesting there that there's a connection between the forgiveness of sins and God talking to us and teaching us himself. And the way I would say that is God doesn't speak on the frequency of condemnation. God doesn't speak on the frequency of guilt and shame and unforgiveness. God only speaks on the, the, the frequency of forgiven, of you're righteous, of no condemnation. Uh, you know what I'm saying? God speaks in that, that vein of thought, all right? Now, Hebrews chapter 9, 
verse 12 says this. He says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, talking about Jesus, He entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Everybody say that. Everybody say eternal redemption. Okay, now hold your spot there, if you can, and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to show you a verse here. So he says, he says that, this is really cool, by the way, if we, if we read more in chapter 9, he says that the Old Testament priests, one time a year, would take the blood of goats and calves, first for his own sins, so he could enter into the holy place, and also for the sins of the people. And he says that he could do that one time a year, uh, just one time a year, one day a year, one time. And... He, he, he makes a distinction there between the man-made tabernacle. Because you remember when Moses went up on, uh, in Exodus chapter 33, 34 and there, he went up on the mountain to talk with God. And it says the Lord showed him the pattern, how to make the, showed him the blueprint, if you will, of how to make the earthly tabernacle. Hebrews 9, he explains here that Jesus didn't go into the earthly t- tabernacle, that there's actually and literally a tabernacle in heaven, and Jesus, as our high priest, took his own human, holy, perfect, pure, shed blood into the heavenly holy of holies on our behalf. All right? So he's, he's explaining that Jesus is not a priest after the law. He's a priest, chapter 7, after the order of Melchizedek. Are, are you following me? All right? Now, let me read this verse to you. Hebrews 9, 12, what did that say? It says that Jesus obtained. Now, notice that Jesus did this. We don't do this. Our good works do not redeem us. Never have, never will. Period, end of story, no exceptions. All right? He says Jesus obtained, what did it say? Eternal redemption for us. All right, now look here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, in whom, talking about Jesus, we have Redemption. There's that word again. Hebrews 9, Jesus gave us eternal redemption. Here's that word again. In whom we have redemption. Through His blood. Then He tells us what redemption is. The forgiveness of sins. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So Hebrews 9 says we have eternal redemption. Ephesians 1, 7 says redemption is the forgiveness of sins. Put those together, what does that say? We have eternal forgiveness of sins through His blood. Can you swallow that? Do your best, all right? That's not me, that's Paul. We have eternal redemption. What is redemption? The forgiveness of sins. Jesus obtained for us eternal forgiveness of sins. And isn't it a shame that we live in this mindset all the time? The the phrase I've heard is you got to keep short accounts with God. The problem with that is there are no accounts. Jesus cleared the books for everyone eternally. All that's left to do is to receive it. So we think, I wish I had a, a dry eraser or whatever you call it board up here. But we think you're born, you start committing sins. And every time you sin, God writes it down. You know, critical thought. Eh, there's a mark against you. 
judgmental and a mark against you, lied, a mark against you, whatever, just your sins. God's writing them up there. And then we think we get saved and God cleans the board. But God, after you got saved, He clears the whole board off, but then you sin. And then you, God marks it up there. And then, then we're taught that we redeem ourselves now. That we stay forgiven by going to God, apologizing, asking for forgiveness, and promising to do better. And that every time we do that, He re-clears the board off. The problem with that is there is no more board, if you will. Are you out there? Now, I know I'm well aware of how contrary this is to what's typically taught, but I can't help that. You mess around and read the Bible, it'll mess you up, all right? Now, so Jesus has provided eternal redemption or eternal forgiveness of sins for us. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 9. Now, again, I'm calling this better covenant, better blood. Why is this a better covenant? One reason is, why we, is, is because we have better blood, okay? Back to Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll look here in, we'll start in verse 14. I don't know, let's start in 13, just where we left off. He said, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, he's talking about Old Testament sin sacrifices. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Dead works are works that you do to try to gain favor with God. Okay? Verse 15. Now check this out. And for this cause, because of His blood, He is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death... For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise, here it is again, of eternal inheritance. All right? Verse 16. Now check this out. This is so good. Where there is a testament or a covenant, you know, like today we say your last will and testament, right? That's same, same language here. Where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be, a, be the death of the testator. So if I leave London in something, an inheritance in, in my last will and testament, he can't get it until I'm dead. Real deep, right? I know. But now, so what, 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 how does this work? Well, Jesus died. All right? Verse 17. For a testament is not put into force until someone dies. Otherwise, it's of no strength while the testator is still alive. Verse 18, whereupon neither was the first covenant dedicated without blood. Verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the book and all the people. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. You've got all these millions of Jews, and Moses, for church that day, he puts animal blood on all of them. I mean, that's literally what happened, you know. Saying, this is the, the, the blood of the covenant which God has enjoined unto you. Stick with me here. I know we're reading a lot. Moreover, verse 21, he sprinkled both blood with blood, both the tabernacle and the vessels of ministry. Verse 22, 
very powerful, critical verse here. Verse 22. And almost all things under the law are purged with blood. Now look at this next part. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. All right, you see that? Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now what does that mean? Under the law, they had Leviticus 16, Jews call it Yom Kippur, uh, or the Day of Atonement. So that was the big day for everyone. That was a big, big feast, big festival, big day. And that's the one day that the priest could offer sins for himself and then go into the Holy of Holies one time for blood for all the people. That was the big day. I just covered it all just in case. But now think about this. We don't have to do this today. Mr. and Miss, you know, Mr. Jew comes home from work and his, his wife says, Honey, how, how was it at the office today? <sighs> Let's get a turtle dove. We got to sacrifice. You know, like when you sinned, that, now, now, this is so foreign to us, it's, it's, it, it, it's hard to communicate it. In our modern church world, we think, I commit a sin, I say, God, please forgive me, and I promise to never do it again, and he forgives me. To a Jewish person, that is a foreign concept. In and of itself, it is. You can read Leviticus and, saw, and really the book of Numbers and see how they did this. I'm at work. Ben parks in my spot. I slash his tires. I'm mad at him, but that's a sin. I go home. She says, "What you, you know? How'd it go?" I got mad at Ben. Cut his tires. So what do I do? Depending on which sacrifice it is, you might get doves or, or turtle uh, turtle doves or pigeons or whatever. You, you get your animal. There is in the Jewish mind. There was no such. All I sin, God, please forgive me. Then you go on about your business. You sin, you get an animal, you go to the high priest. The high priest steps outside the front door of the tabernacle. What did you do? I cut, I slashed Ben's tires. Okay, then I take my hand and I put it on the animal's head and then we slice the animal's throat. That's what they did. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The Jew understands this. You put your hand on the animal, and you confess that. You, what did you do? I cut Ben's tires. So you put your hand on the animal. That transfers your sin to that animal. And it had to be a spotless animal. You know, there were specifications. And then his spotlessness was transferred to you. You cut his throat, and the priest goes inside and takes care of the rest. They had certain ways to, to things to do with certain parts of the meat and burn offerings, all that kind of stuff. So you sin. There was no such thing as, God, please forgive me, I'll do better, amen. There was, you get an animal, you slice his throat with the high priest. Now, under the new covenant, here's the good thing. Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice. You know what I'm saying? That's awesome. So, again, think about this. Today, we sin and we say, please forgive me, I'll do better, amen, <laughs> and you boo-hoo and really show God that you really mean it, all that nonsense. So, Nothing wrong with really meaning it, but you know what I'm saying. It's like we think we got to put on to really show God that you mean it, you know, all that stuff. You don't. Now, under that Jewish system, you want forgiveness, what do you do? You shed blood. Now, in the, in the church, we say you want forgiveness, you say I'm sorry. The problem with, with that mentality, the modern church has built a huge doctrine on 1 John 1.9. So most Christians think that they stay forgiven according to every time saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. 
But Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I mean, that, that's pretty clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. All right? Now, as, you, as we keep reading here, he explains to us how this works. Because you and I, hopefully you don't do this, but you and I don't sacrifice an animal when we sin. Do you? Chris? You? No? Dan? Your neighbor's goat's going missing? You, okay, no. So we're not sacrificing animals when we sin. Okay? Now, Let's keep reading here, and he'll lay this out real clear. Verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things, the heavenly tabernacle that Jesus went into, themselves with better sacrifice. What's that? Jesus himself. Now look at this. Verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the Levitical temple, the holy place made with human hands, which are the figure of the true. But Jesus entered into heaven itself in the presence of God for us. Verse 25, check this out. Nor, nor yet does he offer himself often. Okay? Levitical priest offers sacrifices every day. He does it often. Jesus, it says, does not do this often. He did it one time. Now, at verse 25, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of other animals. Verse 26, for then Jesus must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. In other words, if God had to re-forgive you every time you sinned, then Jesus would have to die all the time for your sins. We're not forgiven over and 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 over like we've been taught. We're forgiven. How many times did Jesus shed his blood for our sins? One time. How many times was he sacrificed? Is the sin sacrifice one time? How many times did he take his own blood into the heavenly holy of holies? One time. In reality, how many times are we forgiven from God? One time. Christians are not people who are continually forgiven. Christians are a forgiven people. That is awesome. Now, if you read the New Testament, like the book of Acts says it a lot. Jesus said it some in the Gospels. book of Hebrews says it a lot and other places. They refer to forgiveness as uh, like in Acts chapter 10. Peter's preaching, and he says, you can't be redeemed through the law of Moses. You're redeemed through Jesus, and through him is preached. Now, he calls it the remission of sins. Now, he calls forgiveness over and over, the remission of sins, the singular it's a, it's a thing. It's not an ongoing process. You receive that forgiveness when you put your faith in Jesus. It's a one-time event. Now think about this. Hebrews 6 talks about this. In order for God to forgive a Christian, blood has to be shed. So in order for God to have to give me more forgiveness than I already received at salvation then Jesus would have to die again. Does that make sense? Now, 
the book of Hebrews, he's making this very point, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, and he makes the same point. Ephesians makes the same point, too. We probably won't look at that, but that's what he's saying. Old Testament priest, every time you sin, you shed blood for that sin. Then remission is, is imputed unto you. In the new covenant, now, see, why did they have to do that? Because the quality of the animal blood could only offer momentary, sin-by-sin forgiveness. But the quality of the blood of Jesus is holy blood. So think about this. I am as forgiven as the blood of Jesus is holy. So however holy that blood is, I'm forgiven on the same level because that's the payment for my sins. I was redeemed. I was purchased. I was bought with that blood. So however holy that blood is, that's how forgiven I am. So... So to say, God, please forgive me, I'm so, uh, if I actually think I'm cut off from God and I'm out of fellowship with God, that's, that's the modern term. It's nothing but a heresy. And to say that God has to give me more forgiveness than, I, than what I already have, I'm actually saying, God, crucify Jesus again so you can forgive me more because the first time wasn't enough. It's saying, Jesus, your blood was good for then, but it was, it's not good enough for today. Reshed your blood. Reapply your blood for me. That's what we're saying. We don't know that. We mean well. But we've built this holy, holy tabernacle on 1 John 1, 9. The only verse in the New Testament that uses the phrase, confess sins which we won't expound on this. I have in times past, and maybe as time goes on, we will. I believe it's a salvation verse. All right? 1 John 1, 9, confess. That's what you do when you get saved. 1 John 1, 8 says this. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive us. That's the new birth. What do you do when you get saved? <coughs> Paraphrase. Lord, I am a sinner, and I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and you raised him from the dead. I receive him as my Lord now. You can't get saved without acknowledging your sinfulness. You confess. Now, that word confess in 1 John 1, 9 is the Greek word. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'll pronounce it the way I've heard it. Homo logeo. Homo logeo. Same homo. Same logeo. Logeo. I don't know how you say it. Homo logeo. Say the same thing. Homo, same, logo, word. Say the same thing. You're admitting, God, yes, I agree with you. I am a sinner. Forgive me. Now, then it says this. When he does that, He's faithful just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we know the New Testament teaches over and over and over again. The, bo the born-again person is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He is my righteousness, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So, when I sin as a believer, I do not step out of my righteousness. I may make a mistake, I may sin, but that cannot change my born-again nature. Because as He is, so am I in this world. In order for my sin to make me unrighteous, my sin would have to make Him unrighteous because He's my righteousness. Did you get that? Okay, we got a few minutes here. Let's, let's read through this. Verse 26, For then must Jesus have, have, have often suffered since the foundation of the world. Now look at this language he starts using here. But now, once in the end of the world, he appeared to put away sin. 
And I, I read verses, and I always think, well, did he succeed? Jesus, did he succeed at what he came to do? If the answer is yes, then he put away sin. Sin is not the issue anymore, all right? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, as it's appointed unto man once to die, then after that the judgment. Verse 28, here's this language again. Appointed unto man once to die. Verse 28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. What that literally means, and the Greek says this, and other translations bear this out, the next time he comes, it's not to deal with sin. Why? Sin's already been dealt with. Now, the high priest in the Old Testament, you can read about all the furniture, the brazen altar, and, and uh, they, they had... The altar had a lot of stuff on it. They had a bowl for the blood they poured around the altar. They had stuff to burn on. They had lots of stuff. But the book of Hebrews bears this out. In the temple, you had the outer court and then the inner court. The inner court was where the high priest and the under priests would go to. And then behind that was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest went once a year. Now, in the furniture of the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, there was no chair. And he makes a point of this in the book of Hebrews. He explains that in that temple, there was no chair. Now, that was symbolic of the fact that the high priest's work was never done. He never sat down because sin was always an issue. He could never sit down because his work was never done. His work was never done because he didn't have a sacrifice that was good enough to deal with sin once and for all. Now, the, the, the book of Hebrews, and we might read it here, and other places says that Jesus, after he offered himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down as our high priest? Because the work's done. There's, there's nothing. God could not do any more to solve the sin problem. God could absolutely do nothing else to forgive you and I more than we were forgiven at, at the cross, at the shedding of his blood. You understand what I'm saying? At our new birth, all right? Now, verse 8, uh, uh, excuse me, that was verse Chapter 9, verse 28. Turn over to the very next verse, chapter 10. Verse 1. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation because it bears it out so good. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, New Living. The old system, now he's not changing subjects here just because it says chapter 10. One sacrifice for all sins for all time, that's the topic. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, but not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that old system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. Verse 2, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, now, now again, perfect cleansing. In other words, it's like taking a bath one time and you can never stay dirty again. You, if you could take a shower and, and that shower was so perfect that for the rest of your life you never had to shower again. Can you imagine? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That'd be awesome. <laughs> Thank God our glorified bodies will be that way. That's what he's saying. The, the blood of animals was 
a sin-by-sin forgiveness system. But it can never cleanse you perfectly. If it was perfect, it wouldn't have to be repeated. All right? That's what he's saying here. He said, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, those sacrifices would have stopped. Still in verse 2. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. Verse 3. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Oh, we got it a lot better than that. We'll remind you of your sins week after week, baby. Every Sunday, we'll remind you of how dirty and sinful you are. You, you see what I'm saying there? That's, for theirs, it was once a year reminder. But we use pulpits to remind people every week, you know, unfortunately. Verse 4, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, I don't, I don't want to read all of this. I need to bounce around. Jump down to verse 8. For Christ, first Christ said, talking to the Father, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, nor were you pleased with them, although they were required by the law of Moses. Verse 9, here we go. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will, Father. In doing so, he canceled the first covenant, the sin reminder covenant. Jesus canceled that in order to put the second covenant into effect. A will and testament, you can't have two at the same time. Legally, you can only have one. Same language here. Verse 10. Now check this out. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Woo! That's awesome. Let me read it again. For God's will was for us to be made holy by our good works, no, by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. I am as holy as that blood is pure. I am redeemed as long as he lives. Okay? Verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which could never take away our sins. Verse 12. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice, one time, for sins, good for all time. It's just hard to argue with that much good news. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. I am closing, by the way, verse 13. There he waits until his enemies, that's the second coming, will be made his footstool. Verse 14. Now check this out. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are made holy. Once again, by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are made holy. Boy, it's just hard to argue with that. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray and dismiss. So better covenant, why? Because we got better blood. The Old Testament and much of the modern church is a sin-by-sin system. Now let me say this again, 
I don't have time to expound it. I believe 1 John 1.9 is a great... I think 1 John 1.9 is great for getting saved, but I think it's hell for staying saved. And I mean hell because it's torment. It's demonic torment when you think that your salvation can be lost if you forget to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. What if you commit a sin and you didn't know about it? If our salvation is only as secure as our latest apology then the Old Testament saints had it a million times better than we did because at least they had one that was good for the whole year. Now, they made the little ones, but they did the Day of Atonement to just cover it all, Just you know what I mean? Their salvation, if you will, was secure for the year based on that Day of Atonement, but ours is moment by moment. We teach 1 John 1.9 in such a way that we make people their own Savior. It's sick, and it's wrong. And it's not okay, and it's not acceptable, and it's not meeting in the middle of the road, and it's not something we should compromise on. People have the right to know what this, the Word of God, this, this, these verses here in Hebrews say. One sacrifice. One. Why? One was enough. For all people, effective for all time. One sacrifice. John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I always think, I always think that when I read, did he succeed? Did he take them away or did he not? And he did. <laughs> and we've had this mixed system. See, in Catholicism, you go to a priest, a man, and say, you know, I cut Ben's tires and I cut Joel's hair while he was asleep. Please forgive me. You know, and he prays for you, whatever. But we think it's better because we talk directly to God ourselves. Let me say this. I do talk to the Lord about my mistakes, my shortcomings, my sins, whatever. Now, the difference is this. Think about London. I always think, you know, I think of him. He's my kid. If, if London, you know, makes a mistake when he gets older and he, he can come say, Dad, I'm sorry. Yeah, we talk about it. I want him to be able to talk to Dad. You know what I'm saying? Like I want him to, to, to understand that he is so accepted he can let me know when he makes a mistake, when he does something he wish he wouldn't have, whatever, you know. Now, it's sort of the same way with the Lord. London, being my son, is not contingent upon him saying, Dad, I threw a rock at the neighbor's cat. I'm sorry. You know, that he's my son either way. But I want him to know he can talk to me. Now, we, God is real. <laughs> There's a thought. So we can talk to him. You know, Lord, I'm, you know, I'm having a hard time. You know, Ben's talking to He says, Lord, I'm having a hard time forgiving Jordan because he cut my tires. You know, but I'll try. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can talk to the Lord about our stuff. Does that make sense? Like, it's just, it's, it's so simple. It's, it's, you know, you know what I'm saying? But, but we've made, when we make our salvation and our redemption and our forgiveness contingent upon one verse so taken out of context and, and used to just control and manipulate people, man. It's, it's torment. If you take 1 John 1.9 as a non-salvation verse, as a Christian bar of soap, if you take it seriously and you're honest with yourself, you'll be miserable. You'll have to be. Because you'd have to spend all your time, you know, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I'm sorry. If you're serious about it. Now, if you're a Pharisee and you think you're doing pretty good and you only have to say I'm sorry every now and then, then, then you'll, you, you might be able. But, the, you know, I said this recently. Grace is not for Christians who want to get away with sin. Grace is for people who have tried overcoming sin so hard in their own ability and willpower that they have realized it's futile and impossible to ever do it. 
that it's got to be God in you and not your own willpower and, and, and self-ability. You know, am I making sense? So grace isn't for people who want to sin. It's for people who say, I can't overcome sin. It's got to be God's grace. It's, it's for that. You know, People who are all too aware, they've tried harder than the rest. They've took holiness more serious than the rest of the people. And they realize it's hopeless. I can't do this. It's got to be God. You know, That's who grace is for. Now, it's this same thing, and I am closing. Again, I talk to the Lord about my shortcomings and that kind of thing. But thank God I have learned that my salvation is not contingent on, you know, it's so funny. I've, I've had people say, no, 1 John says you have to repent. Well, the word repent, repentance, repenting, repented is not in 1 John anywhere. Not one time in the whole book. Now, the Greek New Testament, the word repent is metanoia. It means change of mind, change your mind. Now, if repent means to say, I sinned, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I turn from it, I'll never do it again, which is what we're taught, then we got a big problem. Because the book of Exodus says that Moses talked to God, and God, this is what it says, God repented. The book of Exodus, you remember, God was going to kill him, and Moses said, Lord, don't kill him. Now, the Lord was just Either way, he went. He had a right to, but he had the right to be merciful, merciful not to. And it actually says, the Lord repented of the evil that he thought towards them. So if repentance means promising to never sin again, then God has sinned because Exodus says God repented. But it doesn't. It means change of mind. But the, New Test the, the church today thinks repent. Tell God you sinned. Tell him you're sorry. Ask him to forgive you. Promise to never do it again, and then never do it again. But it doesn't. It means a change of mind. Again, I'm belaboring this point. I need to stop. Suffice it to say, one sacrifice for all sins for all time. So we can talk to the Lord about our stuff, but let's never confuse the issue. As a born-again person, you have been forgiven, period, case closed, forever. It is impossible. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. If His blood can't forgive you, your apology is not going to get you more forgiveness. Only blood does it. i got to stop. I love you. Let's dismiss.